Well, last Sunday morning we finished our studies in the book of John. Uh, We never intended to go through the whole of the gospel. We were simply looking at Jesus' public ministry, and uh, we finished that last Sunday morning. And so for the next few weeks, taking us up till the summertime, and maybe we will go into the summer a little bit as well, we're going to, I'm not sure whether, you might not say at the end of it, that was fascinating, David, but anyway, we're hopefully going to have eight fascinating studies uh, in the book of Isaiah. And, uh, but you might ask, where on earth do we start? Because Isaiah is a massive book, one of the biggest books uh, in the whole of, of the canon of Scripture. Uh, it's a book that has long sections about God's judgment upon the nations, but also has some of the most beautiful poetry in, in the whole of the Bible. Its setting is in Judah, and for those who are perhaps are fairly new to the Christian faith, you may remember way back um, that the people of God were in Egypt, living in bondage there under the pharaohs, and uh, then they cried out unto the Lord, and the Lord, through Moses, brought them through the Red Sea and into the Promised Land. And for many years... They lived under the guidance of what the Bible describes as judges, people like Gideon and and Samson and people such as that. But then they came to a point in their life where they clamored for kings. They said, we want to have a king like the surrounding nations. And so we had the appointment of Saul and then David and then Solomon And then toward the end of Solomon's reign, it all began to go a bit pear-shaped, and the kingdom split in two, and there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and the southern kingdom is what we call Judah, and it's from the southern kingdom that the Messiah ultimately would come. And at this point in their history, um, the land is pretty prosperous, but they're facing an immense threat from Assyria, who was like the global megapower in the area at that time. We know very little about Isaiah. He was the son of Amos, uh, whoever that was. Uh, He was married. We know that he had at least two sons, and he lived in Jerusalem, uh, which is not insignificant in terms of the whole storyline as well. And tradition Uh, has it that he was sawn in two, and uh, that's how he died. There's a lot of dispute, even amongst evangelical scholars, about whether Isaiah wrote the whole of the book, or whether he only wrote part of it, maybe the first 39 chapters, and then perhaps somebody else wrote the final section, or even whether there were a couple of other people wrote the final section. In one sense, for our purposes, it probably doesn't matter that much. Uh, What is important is that we understand the message and the themes. Although if we wanted to argue that the Isaiah, the son of Amos, wrote the whole of the book, one of the strongest arguments for doing so is how God is portrayed within the book of Isaiah. So, for example, he's normally given the title the Holy One of Israel. And so on 26 occasions, uh, throughout the whole of the book, not just in the first section, throughout the whole of the book of Isaiah, 
God is described in this way. And yet he's only described in this way six times in the rest of the Old Testament. So the use of this phrase, the Holy One of Israel, that describes how Isaiah understood God and how God revealed himself to him is something that ties it all together. Isaiah's name itself means the Lord saves. And that's probably a clue also to what the main theme of the book is all about. Some people have described Isaiah as the evangelistic prophet or the evangelical prophet. Because throughout Isaiah, there's a desire that men and women, not only in Israel, but throughout the world, come to know the salvation uh, of God. It's always a bit tempting sometimes to try and find a key verse that perhaps sums up the essence of a book, especially one as long as the book of Isaiah. And, uh, but anyway, I, I've yielded to the temptation. And there's a little verse in Isaiah 45 and verse 22 that I think probably does adequately encapsulate what's at the heart of the whole of the book. It simply says this, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. This was a message to the people of Judah, to the people of Israel, but to the people of the surrounding nations. Turn to me and be saved, for I am God, and there is none other. To try and understand the book a little bit better um, is actually quite complicated, because there's all sorts of different themes running through the book. And, you know, there are times and chapters and portions where it's evident that God just pours his grace into the lives of his people. And he just does more for them than ever they could have imagined or deserved. Of course, that's grace. But then there's also times God just gets fed up with his people. He gets frustrated with them because they seem not to listen or appreciate what he's done. And then we have sections where God ends up saying, okay, you're going to come under my judgment. And the blessings that I've given you in the past, I'm going to take away again. And yet even as he says that, there are these passages that are filled with hope. And uh, as he looks to the future, and he sees that things are going to be different. And then God comes again in saving power and transforms the people. And then they go back and rebel. And that whole sort of cycle, almost like a roller coaster of ideas, that sort of dynamic is there right through the whole of the book. This morning we're going to be looking at just nine verses in chapter 6, where Isaiah is called and commissioned by God. But before we do that, in chapters 1 to 5, you see little indicators of all of those themes that I've just been talking about. In a sense, preparing the ground, helping us to understand the dynamic that was going on in Israel and in the surrounding nations. So I'm just going to read a couple of verses from each of those five chapters to try and give you an idea of this dynamic that provides the background to the book of Isaiah. So in chapter 1, the people of God are acting like spoiled kids. Now, some of you who have children 
will understand exactly how God is feeling. You say, do you know, you don't appreciate anything I do for you. You know, you've just taken them out for the day, or you've just bought them this wonderful present at Christmas or for their birthday, and then they end up being cheeky to you, and you just think, you don't deserve half of what I do for you. Well, that's a bit like it was here in chapter 1. So the Lord says, hear me. I reared children and I brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. Even the ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger. But Israel doesn't seem to know. My people don't understand. And so the people of God acting like spoiled brats and turning their back upon God. But they're still doing all the religious stuff. They're still going through all the motions of worship. And the more they do it, the more it annoys God. God just says, okay, you're living in rebellion, so why are you sticking with all this religious stuff? It's all just superficial and meaningless. And so he goes on to say, I can't bear your worthless assemblies. If you imagine assemblies being the equivalent of our church services today. God says, I can't bear your church services. What on earth must be in the hearts of God's people if God comes to a place where he says, every time I see you meeting together, worshiping me, it just drives me mad. He says, your festivals I hit with all my being. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes. I don't even like to see you praying because I know it's coming from a heart that's false and a million miles away from me and where you ought to be. So in chapter 1, we have that whole sort of idea of God's people just losing the plot. And yet in chapter 2, there's this new image of a hopeful future. God says, actually, I can look forward to a time. And he talks, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. He imagines this time in the future whenever God will be worshipped on the highest mountain in the land and proper glory will be given to him. He will teach us his ways. And we will walk in his paths. And he imagines the people saying to one another, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So even though he sees them like spoiled kids in chapter 1, there's that sense of hopefulness that in the future he can imagine them worshipping on the highest mountain and, and encouraging one another, let's walk together in the light of the Lord because he is our God. But then in chapter 3, we've got a whole big section about judgment. Because times were prosperous in the times of Isaiah. And uh, the people never had it so good. They were living lives that qualitatively, in one sense, were better than they'd ever been. They could eat all they wanted. They could clothe themselves and find garments, etc., etc., etc. But God comes and he threatens to take it all away. And so he says, in that day, the Lord will snatch away your finery, your perfume bottles and your charms, your purses and your mirrors, your tiaras and your shawls. Instead of fragrance, there'll be a stench. And instead of fine clothing, there'll be sackcloth. 
So the people of Judah at this time, because of the prosperity, were able to afford expensive perfume brought in from the surrounding nations. And uh, in many of their homes, there would have been a beautiful fragrance. But God says, I'm going to take it all away because you don't appreciate anything of what I've done for you. And instead of that smell of perfume, there will be stench in the land because I'm going to bring judgment upon it. And then in chapter 4, uh, we go back a bit like to chapter 2, where God says, I know that this is what you deserve. But actually, in that day, as he looks to the future, he says, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and those who remain in Jerusalem will be called holy. You see the ups and downs? You see this crazy cycle? You see this, you know, up and down, up and down, God's grace, the people's rebellion, failure to appreciate, God's threatening judgment, but there's hope in the future. And in chapter 5, there's one of the most poignant passages where God describes his people as being like a little vineyard. And he looks after the vineyard and carefully, you know, uh, tends to it. But all it does is produce rotten fruit. And so he says, I will sing for the one I love. A song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up. He cleared it of stones. He planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower on it to protect it. And he cut out a wine press. But he looked for a crop of good grapes. But it yielded only bad fruit. God says like, I have treated you with so much kindness. I've poured my love and my grace and my goodness into your life as a nation. And all I get is rotten grapes. So those sorts of themes are there right through the book of Isaiah. And they provide, if you like, the context into which Isaiah is called in chapter 6. So let's turn to chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Uzziah was the tenth king uh, on the throne of, of Judah. And his father was uh, called Amaziah. And this is what the book of Chronicles says about his dad. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not wholeheartedly. And as I was reading that earlier in the week, I thought, how much is that true of me and of many of us as Christians most of the time? You know, there is part of us that just longs to serve God faithfully, to do his will, to live uprightly for him. And yet there are times our attitude is half-hearted. We're not wholehearted in our devotion of him and in our desire to serve him. And if that was true of Uzziah's father, it was certainly true of Uzziah himself. So again, if you read the book of Chronicles, you discover that in the early part of Uzziah's reign, um, things went really well. He honored God, and God prospered them and brought them success. And so the writer says, as long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. But afterwards, Uzziah became powerful. 
and his pride led to his downfall. So later in his reign, he ended up getting too big for his boots, and he just thought he was untouchable, he could do whatever he wanted. So at one point, he stormed into the temple and acted in a way that was just totally out of order. And so all the priests sort of said, just get this guy out of here, you know. And as a result of what he did, um, the Lord struck him down with leprosy. And he ended up spending the last years of his life in a separate house where he no longer was able to engage with his own people because of his disease, and no longer could he engage in the worship of God because as a leper he was prohibited from entering the temple area. But nevertheless, he was someone that the people looked up to because he had brought them great wealth. There was stability. There was peace. But as he lay dying, the people also were becoming increasingly anxious because the might of Assyria was threatening their borders. So they were beginning to feel a little bit nervous. In the year that he died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. It's difficult, isn't it? Because we know that as created beings, it's impossible to see the Lord and to live. There's no way any one of us as creatures can ever see the Lord in all his glory and all his brilliance and live. We can think of people like Moses. Do you remember in Exodus 33? And he comes and he says to God, Now, God, show me your glory. And uh, the Lord says, look, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. But the Lord says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. You see, there were times that God graciously chooses to reveal himself to individuals in a way that they could comprehend. No one could see the fullness of the glory of God and survive. God is so holy, and we are so sinful. We cannot stand in the presence of such a God and survive. But nevertheless, God in his grace at times reveals something of his glory, something of his character to us in a way that is beyond normal human comprehension. And that's the situation here. Isaiah sees the Lord high and exalted, seated upon a throne. And of course, this is significant, isn't it? Because it's in the context where Uzziah was either on his deathbed or had just died. Uzziah, the king that many of the people of God had confidence in. The person who had brought them prosperity. And even as he lay dying, the Assyrians were threatening their borders. And the people of God must have been thinking to themselves, what's going to happen now? Apart from the fact that our economy might go down the chute, our whole lives are in danger. We could end up being taken into slavery. What on earth is going to happen? They feel nervous. 
They feel unsure. They feel uncertain. We live in this crazy world where everything appears to be upside down. But Isaiah has this picture. And he says, in a place where the earthly king is on his deathbed or has died, there is another king who sits reigned on the throne. And he is the one who has everything under his control. My dad was as good a singer as I am. And um, he used to sing an old hymn. Only one person had ever heard of it at the 930 congregation. And he didn't know any of the verses. I mean, he would have sung them when he was in church. But he only ever sang the chorus, and he would have sung it over and over and over again. Particularly if there was something on the news that was disturbing or whatever. And um, sometimes he would sing it when he was shaving, and he had one of these old, you know, shaver things. And he would be singing, and obviously at the same time cutting himself. So he had come out of the bathroom with little bits of toilet paper stuck all over his chin, trying to stop the blood. But at the same time, he had enjoyed himself singing. And he used to sing this song called, God is Still on the Throne. Does anybody know that song? Oh, oh, wow, wow. This obviously reflects the fact that it's an older congregation at 11.15, all right. God is still on the throne, and he will member his own. Though trials may press us and burdens distress us, he never will leave us alone. God is still on the throne. He never forsaketh his own. His promise is true. He will not forget you. God is still on the throne. Amen. You see, and this really was the message to Isaiah. Isaiah might be dead. The people might be worried. The people might be concerned. The people might be nervous. But there is one seated high and lifted up. And he's the one who's in control. Maybe we need to hear that in our world today. Maybe you need to hear that in your own personal world today. That in spite of what is going on in your life, in your particular individual situation, remember, God is still on the throne. And he will remember his own. And then he goes on to say, and his train filled the temple. I was never quite sure why people had long trains on their wedding dresses. Um, But having done some research via Google, I discovered that Princess Diana was the member of the royal family with the longest ever train. And uh, generally speaking, it's not so much true today, but generally speaking, uh, when the longer the train, the more honor that was attributed to you, Um, you know, the higher you were up the you know, the pecking order in terms of royalty um, and, and all of that. But here's this image of seeing God high and exalted, seated upon the throne, and his robes or the end of his robes, his train, fills the entire temple, symbolizing that the temple of God is filled with the brilliance of God, filled with the magnificence of God, filled with the glory of God, filled with the brilliance of God. The awesomeness of God is revealed because the temple in every little nook and cranny is filled with the train that reflects the greatness of who he is. 
And then he goes on to say, above him, above the throne, there were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. These creatures are not mentioned elsewhere, certainly not described as seraphs or seraphim anywhere else. And they, they literally in the Hebrew mean like the burning ones, because that's how they appeared. They appeared just to be like a, a, a bundle of the brightest light, burning intensely. And they were, if you like, angelic attendants to the king of kings as he sat upon the throne. You see, if, if we even saw a seraph today, we would be tempted to worship it because of the brilliance and the burning and the imagery. We would be even tempted to worship a seraph. But the seraphs themselves have to cover their faces because even these brilliant creatures, even these burning angelic beings can't even gaze upon God. So there's a reminder there. And it's a reminder that is put well by A.W. Tozer in one of his books. He says, sometimes we think of God as like the highest being in a sort of ascending order of beings, or like in a hierarchy of beings. There's this hierarchy with God at the top. And so we think of the single-cell amoeba, and um, then we think of maybe a caterpillar or we think of a fish, and then maybe a bird, and then an animal, and then man, and then like a common five-eighth angel, and then the seraphim, and then God. There's almost like that hierarchy as if you move from one to the other. And uh, Tozer says, you know, that's completely wrong to think of God in that way. He says, God is as high above the seraphim as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the seraphim from the caterpillar is finite. But the gulf between God and the seraphim is infinite. So even though there appears to be a massive gap between a caterpillar and a seraph, it's a finite gap. It's a measurable gap. And it goes into insignificance in comparison with the gap between the seraph and God himself. God isn't at the end of this hierarchy of beings. God is so far even beyond the seraphim that we can't even begin to describe him. Even the seraphim are unable to look at him in all his glory. With two wings, they covered their feet, symbolizing their humble approach. With two wings, they were flying. They were continually in the service of God. We have a similar image, don't we, in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. Uh, in Revelation 4, for example, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal, in the center and around the throne were four living creatures. 
Each of them had six wings, and day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And in a sense, that's the same song that was being sung here in Isaiah chapter 6. These seraphim were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of the voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. It's important for us to understand that whenever the author says, holy, 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 it's not just for repetition. It's to emphasize something much deeper and much more profound. You see, in the Hebrew language, there are no superlatives. So there's no word like holiest or the holiest in in Hebrew. So later on, in a few weeks' time, we might be looking at that verse, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you. Well, literally in the Hebrew, it says something like, you will keep him in peace, peace whose mind is stayed upon you. So the use of the double adjective is like our superlative. So whenever you have peace, peace, it's like the best peace there is. Or there is perfect peace. And here he has not just a double adjective, but a triple adjective. The only place in the whole of Scripture where such a grammatical device is used. He isn't just the Holy One. He isn't even just the holiest. He's the holiest in a way that's beyond human description. One commentator puts it like this. He says, It takes a unique linguistic contrivance to convey the meaning of God's holiness beyond its meaning. We can't find the language. We can't find the Hebrew. We can't find the concept to describe the holiness of God. It's a holiness that is beyond human description. And yet as we look at Scripture, we find different places where we get a little hint, a little insight of what God's holiness is like. So in Psalm 29, he talks about the splendor of God's holiness. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. You see, we can't even adequately describe it. We can just try and create a sense of who he is and what he is like. Or it talks about his majestic holiness in Exodus 15. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in your holiness, awesome in glory, working your wonders? Or later on in Isaiah 40, to whom then will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One of Israel? My holiness cannot be compared with the holiness of any other being or any other creature or any other God in the surrounding nations. 
You can't say that my holiness is just bigger and nicer and better than everybody else's. It's in a totally different category. Our God is holy. He is excellent in every aspect of his being. There is none like unto our God. This is the vision that he has. And then he goes on to say, the whole earth is full of his glory. God's glory is simply his holiness revealed. So in the Bible, whenever God wants to reveal his holiness, to reveal something of his character, it's described as his glory. So here he says, the whole earth is full of his glory. You see, in one sense, God doesn't want any part of his world to be considered just ordinary. And and so when we go out and look at the hills or appreciate the flowers or appreciate one another, in, in one sense, God doesn't want his world and any part of his world just to be considered ordinary. He wants every part of his world to be touched by his own character. He is working toward a plan and a purpose where the whole world reflects his character, where his glory is evident in every part of humanity. That was God's original purpose for the world. That's why we pray, our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're praying for. We're praying that the glory of God, something of the character of God, something of the excellence of God, something of God's holiness will be evident in all our relationships in this community and in our world. This is God's ultimate purpose for the world. This is what the world will one day become when Christ returns to reign. He wants the earth to be like an extension of his throne room in heaven. And that's what would get his eye up in the morning. It's this vision that ultimately would be his driving force for his prophetic ministry in the years that lie ahead. That's why we keep doing what we're doing as Christians, as Christian leaders, as people within the congregation. That's why we keep doing what we're doing in terms of our service in the church, in terms of whatever we do for God. We don't just do it out of a sense of duty. Sometimes we lose sight of God's overarching purpose. What we're doing day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, as individuals and as a church, is to see the glory of God increasingly manifest in this community. That's what God has called us to do. And whenever we keep that to the forefront of our minds, it's not hard to get up in the morning and to go about God's business. But when we lose sight of God's big purpose for his world, then we get caught up in stupid things that don't really matter. And we end up losing energy and we end up getting discouraged and we end up, why are we doing what we're doing? But this is God's God's ultimate aim, (laughs) is that this creature of excellence, this God like no other, this God perfect in his holiness, that his glory will be revealed in Kirk and Tillich. That's what he's called us to do. So in the light of all of that, what is the response of Isaiah? Well, the response within the temple was that the doors were shaking and the thresholds were shaking. Not surprising. And so it's not surprising that he ends up shaking as well. 
And he thinks, whoa, I've just seen this amazing spectacle. I, I haven't seen God in all his glory. I haven't seen God in all his holiness. Otherwise, I'd be burnt up. But I've seen a little aspect of God. And even that leaves me feeling that I'm under his condemnation. And so he cries out, woe to me, like I'm, I'm ruined, I'm a goner. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king. The two of us can't coexist. In chapter 5, the previous chapter, there are six woes outlined against the people of God. Six things where God challenges them and judges them in terms of their behavior and their attitude. But actually, here's the seventh and the final woe where Isaiah comes and he realizes, actually, I'm no better than the surrounding people. I'm no better than the rest of the community. I'm actually, you know, I'm I'm just a caterpillar like everybody else. You know, I've got nothing more to give to God than the other people around me. There's nothing particularly impressive about me. I'm just a sinner like everybody else. I'm just, yeah, how on earth can I do anything for God? Whenever I was at school, I think I was about 13 at the time, I had to audition for the school choir. This still leaves me deeply traumatized. (laughs) There are times I think about this and wake up sweating. I went into a classroom with about 30 other boys. And uh, it was a grammar school where we had to, you know, it was, you know, where the choirs competed against each other in, in, in the area and so on. And they were always proud, proud, first and foremost, of the rugby team, but then also proud of the school choir, you see. And um, so everyone had to audition for the school choir. So the music teacher, like, he was sitting at the front behind his desk, and every boy had to come up and turn. And he was saying, I want you to sing the scales. Well, I was just glad I wasn't first. I didn't even know what he meant when he said, like, will you sing the scales? But, like, the first 10 or 15 boys got up and sang, do, what is it, Ray, me, whatever. And I thought, I must try and remember what they are, you know. Do, <laughs> you see. Anyway, so he then says, Gordon, come up, you see. So I came up and stood. And I, I went, do, Ray. I got as far as far. Is that the fourth one? He just says, enough, Out. So I was condemned to general studies for the rest of the the term. Um, And he just said, look, you obviously have nothing you can contribute to this choir. Just out. Like he was, it was brutal, wasn't it? Like a music teacher spoke to me on the way out and said, we would never do that today. In fact, we would probably put you in purposely just to encourage you. I don't know which is worst. Okay. (laughs) But you see... If Isaiah had went for an addition 
to be used in God's service. He knew, he knew that he would sing off key in any edition. As a result of seeing the glory of God, and as a result of becoming aware of his own sinful and his own inadequacy, he knew that whatever came across to God, it would be off key. That he had nothing to offer. Nothing that he could do. So he probably feared the worst when he looked up and he sees one of these seraphim coming to him with like a live coal from off the altar. And he probably thought to himself, whoa, this doesn't look good. Like, I know I'm off key. I know I've got nothing to offer to God. Woe is me, I'm a goner. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar. Like, am I going to be blinded? Is he going to just burn me up? Is he going to destroy me? But Isaiah isn't hurt. He's healed. With it, he touched my mouth. And he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The image is reminiscent of the Day of Atonement that you can read about in Leviticus 16, where on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go to the altar of sacrifice and he would take burning coals from the altar of sacrifice and go into the holy place of the tabernacle. And then he would go through the curtain into the most holy place. And those hot coals uh, would be there as part of the ritual that would be undertaken to bring about forgiveness for the sins of the people. And the smoke would rise up in the midst of the Holy of Holies as an indication that God's reconciling work had been done. And so he comes and using this same symbolism, he touches the lips. You are able now to sing out God's praise. You are able now to speak out prophetically the message that I will give you to the people. The very instrument that he would use to serve God has been touched and cleansed and renewed. And the same is true for each one of us. Do you know, none of us would pass the addition for God's kingdom. None of us would pass the addition to be part of God's army. None of us would pass the addition. But thank God he's not like my music teacher. He's not so brutal and says, Gordon, out. Just amuse yourself for the rest of your term. God says, no. Because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, because of his sacrifice, he comes and renews us and restores us and forgives us and pours his grace into our lives and he deals with our sin and our shortcomings and our rottenness so that we in his righteousness are able to serve him adequately. And so after that sense of conviction of sin, it's followed by this cleansing 
from the fire, which leads ultimately to his commissioning and to his calling. And how wonderful it is to know that if we have come to Christ, we've passed the audition. God sees us as we are in Christ, and we are able to serve him and to glorify him and to work in his kingdom. Although it does need something else. It needs a willingness on our part to surrender to his will for us. And so in verse 8, we read this verse. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, Here am I. Send me. A couple of verses before, he was saying, Woe is me! <laughs> like I'm a goner. I just realized the brilliance of God. There's no way I can serve this God. I'm a sinner. I'm full of frailty and shortcomings. But he understands the cleansing of God. And standing in that cleansing, he says, God, perhaps I can play a little part. Here am I. Send me. You perhaps wonder why it's up on the screen the way it is. Well, that's my old Bible from when I was a teenager. I was one of the first Bibles I, I ever bought. And uh, it was a big, you know, wide margin AV Bible. And uh, in lots of places in it, there are wee scribbles and wee notes. Uh, but I still have it up in the study. And I was listening to my pastor preaching this probably 50 years ago. Probably 50 years ago. And uh, he preached down through this passage and and I probably at the start of the service thought, do you know, there's parts of me would like to serve God, but like me. Uh, and then when he got to verse 8, I thought, yeah, Lord, here am I. I know I'm not perfect, but I know that you see me in Christ. And here I am. Service finished. And I went home and I thought, well, at least I've given God the heads up. You know, that if you want to use me, God, I'm here, you know. Isn't it funny? I didn't realize there was another verse, like numpty. And the pastor never preached on the next verse or the rest of the chapter. And you can see in my big old Bible that verse 8 finishes at the bottom right-hand corner. So on that Sunday as I was listening to that, I didn't know there was another verse over the page. And either days or weeks later, I was thinking about this, and I got it down, and I underlined it. You can see how I've underlined it there with my pen. And I must have flicked over the page and realized, oh, that's not the end of the story. As I flicked over the page, and it says, he said, go and tell his people. And it wasn't an easy message for Isaiah. But nevertheless, he said, go and I realize, flip me, there's, there's another bit of the verse over the page. And I felt clearly that God was saying to me, I want you to serve me in some way in a full-time capacity. 
But you know, this isn't just about being called into full-time Christian service. God has a plan for his world. This God, in all his brilliance, longs to see his glory spill over into every part of this community, into every part of our world. And he's looking for men and women and churches who are willing just to surrender everything to serve him in whatever capacity. And because of what Christ has done for us, because we stand in his cleansing, we are able to say as individuals, and we're able to say, if you're like corporately as a church, God, here we are, here am I. Send us, use us, help us to be part of this big plan. And I hope we hear him saying to us as a congregation this morning, KBC, don't sit on your hands. Go and be part of God's big calling in this world. But maybe he is saying to some of you as individuals, actually, there's something particular that I want you to do with your life in the coming months and the coming years. And just now you need to hear that. And you need to respond to that and say, God, I am here. I have heard your call. I want to do your will. I want to see your glory manifest in this world. I'm going to pray and then coincidentally, if you believe in coincidences, Margaret has chosen a hymn which I sang here at my commissioning service 11 years ago. A song which has meant so much to me over the years. But uh, if I had chosen a final song for this morning, I probably would have chosen this one. So as the band come to join me, let me pray. God, I just want to ask for your forgiveness in some ways for inadequately trying to sum up what this passage means. I recognize that it's almost impossible. You are just such an amazing God. You're not just a holy God. You're a holy, holy, holy God, a God that we can't even begin to imagine. You are beyond human description. But thank you that you long that something of who you are flows throughout our world, that something of your character is reflected in your glory being seen here in KBC, here in Kirky, here in Hillhead, here in Guinea, here in the world of which we are a part. Thank you that you've cleansed us. Thank you that in one sense, we all can pass your addition because of Christ. But help us to be willing to surrender our lives. Help us to be willing as a church to go and fulfill your calling upon our lives. For we ask it in your name. Amen.